Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is David Feingold, your host for the Future of Higher Education podcast and the president of Chatham University in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I'm here today with Sean Creighton, my friend and the president of the New American Colleges and Universities, an association of 24 um, universities from across the United States that we'll, we'll learn more about in today's conversation. Sean, great to be with you. David, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, Sean, to start out, can you tell us a little bit about your upbringing? Where did you grow up? Where did you go to school? Okay, we'll start at the beginning then. Um, so uh, I'll try and keep it brief. But uh, I grew up uh, an hour north of New York City. And uh, what for those who live in the New York area, that means like Westchester. I was born in Tarrytown, but for others okay. who do not live in New York, yeah, an hour north. And uh, grew up there, graduated from high school. And uh, I, um, uh, I went to Marist College in Poughkeepsie, New York, which was another hour north of where I grew up, right on the Hudson. Beautiful campus, uh, great school, and I uh, was inspired to continue to study literature. I graduated as an English major, and then I went on to uh, New York University. So I went back down into the city and uh, worked on a master's degree in English and American Lit with a uh, literary theory kind of concentration at the time. And uh, so that's, yeah, that's my area or my part of the country. My family's still, they're all there. Uh, I, I didn't realize we grew up so close together. I was in Scarsdale uh, for, for high oh, school yeah, until my yeah. family moved down to Texas. So very cool. Oh, right. So, so how, how did uh, a master's in English end up um, becoming a leader of several different associations of, of colleges and universities? Good question. So, uh, you know, our paths are always so unique and interesting. And uh, I, you know, first was uh, interested in teaching. So I went into the classroom and uh, focused on, uh, well, what I'd been training for, teaching Shakespeare, poetry, college writing one and two, you know, and uh, trying to inspire students, freshmen mostly, um, through through uh, narrative and, and uh, literary arts. Uh when I moved out to Ohio, uh, which is now about 20 years ago, uh, I, again, connected with a local university, was teaching some classes, and I was at an event one night, and I overheard somebody say, we're looking for uh, somebody to come in and do our director of development's work while she's on maternity leave. And uh, that was for a nonprofit arts education group. And I, I, was, I just turned to her. I was like, oh, you know, I'm doing a couple of things. Just got out here. Happy to do that. How long? She said six months. It turned into like five years. Uh, I ended up staying in the position because the person decided to stay at home and uh, really focused on advancement work. And and that led to me uh, leaving that position after five years to go to uh, Antioch University and help start up a development program at one of their campuses. And then I ended up taking on more responsibility, working with the president directly on a, a variety of initiatives, 
uh, strategic initiatives to grow enrollment, to just create more efficiencies, all of that. And, and then from there, you know, more university work and then eventually landing into a, an association uh, in Southwest Ohio, uh, working with over 20 institutions, very different institutions, but working on finding a common agenda um, and, you know, working on workforce development issues and, and all kinds of really cool strategic initiatives for our region which brought me to uh, the New American Colleges and Universities uh, just a couple of years ago. So that's, it seems actually in, a, in telling that story, it seems like a very straightforward pathway. <laughs> Sean, tell us when you joined uh, the New American Colleges and Universities and a little bit about the, the, what attracted you to the role and the history of the organization. Sure. I, uh, I joined the New American Colleges and Universities in March 2019. And uh, I was attracted first moving from a kind of regional state organization to more of a, a national organization. And also what really attracted me was the, the institutions that made up um, NACU uh, and that they were spread out all over the country, that they were like-minded, like-missioned, and a, a certain type of institution that kind of appealed to me. Um, and we'll get a little bit into like what makes them a new American college and university, but it was the, uh, that integrated approach to learning that really at its core was a liberal arts institution, but had more of a focus on pro developing professionals and, um, being connected to the community and making it an impact, uh, through the education that they provide. The, uh, the history of the organization, I mean, right away, another thing that attracted me to it was that uh, Ernest Boyer, who I had studied at when I was doing my doctoral work, uh, who wrote the Scholarship of Engagement, Scholarship Reconsidered, he was there in the beginning and helped found the organization and is accredited for leading a lot of the conversations at that time. There were, uh, and this is a small fact too, Ernest Boyer was uh, born in Dayton, Ohio, which is where we're based. And I was, it was like, wait, too many things are lining up here. <laughs> the founder of this national organization that I'm really attracted to was born here, and his parents actually are buried here locally. But the uh, so there were a number of things happening in the in the 1990s. And this convergence of conversations took place where this uh, uh, it was the uh, the provost at the University of Redlands at the time, Frank Wong who wrote this landmark essay called The Ugly Ducklings of Higher Education. And it received a lot of attention. Uh, and he, he was talking about institutions that they were not strictly liberal arts colleges. They were not research universities. They were not large publics. They weren't community colleges. Yet they had this kind of distinctive focus on that. As I kind of mentioned, it's a liberal arts core. Uh, undergraduate found residential experience and a, a more of a practical focus on developing professionals and um, developing, you know, the workforce for their region. They weren't elite institutions with a national or global brand and huge endowments, uh, but they were had strong regional brands and were making a big difference in their communities. And a bunch of uh, a select group of provosts came together just to kind of compare notes, talk about one another. And uh, Ernest Boyer helped facilitate that, which then, at the end of the day, what emerged was, uh, at that time, it was called the, the Associated New American Colleges, ANAC, 
And then uh, that developed into the new American colleges and universities uh, over the years. And do you know anything about the choice of that title, particularly the the new, obviously? Now it's more than 20, 20 25 years since it was founded. Um, th- that is remained even as the, as the title changed. Right. Well, again, going back to Ernest Boyer, he wrote a piece um, calling for the new American college at that time. It was published, I mean, you can find it in the Chronicle of Higher, if you just Google it, you'll find it in the Chronicle of Higher Ed today. And he was calling for an institution that, that improved the human condition, that focused their energies on addressing uh, economic and social issues and, and using the resources and the, and the educational power of the institution to address these issues. And it was in that moment, in that declaration, that these institutions recognize themselves. And, and it has since become, as you know, uh, Mary Marcy has written a book about the different models of small colleges. And it's one of the, the models in there, the new American college and university model that does this integrated liberal arts, professional development, professional studies and, and community engagement model of education. And so with that sort of bringing together of like institutions, what 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 have been the key roles that the the association has sought to play in terms of adding value to its members? When when we look back in our history, we started out in you know the 1990s as uh, an organization that really worked more closely with provosts and faculty, and at at the core of the organization, we're still an academic consortium. But over the years, we have expanded to focus on working more closely with higher ed leadership, and certainly working more closely with presidents uh, and then the chief academic officers, but also vice presidents and all the different areas, sort of the C-suite of higher ed. And, you know, there are a number of things that, that we do and just facilitating exchange between these institutions and the opportunity to have conversation, uh, share strategy, uh, share data in a, in a trusted confidential space. Uh, you know, just managing that itself has been kind of what I hear when I talk to people, um, the value of the organization. And another thing that we do, and we've been, we've heard this over and over, we listen really closely in those conversations or in just one-on-one meetings with our campuses to understand what their challenges are and then to create some opportunities that are, are larger than just one institution working on it but more of the collective approach. And also want to make note that our institutions, they don't compete directly. There might be some overlap in certain areas, maybe in an athletic conference, they're attracting a couple of the same athletes, but otherwise they're not really competing. So again, it goes back to creating that, that trusted and open space uh, for sharing. And could you say a little more about them not competing because there is a distinctive profile of institution you're looking for. So how does um, NACU bring together like institutions, but not ones that view themselves as competitors? Right. Well, the first thing, they're just proximity. I mean, they're spread out. I mean, that's, and, uh, and also we create an environment. It's an invitation into the group. It's not like someone can just go to our website and sign up and become a member. There's a real process for vetting, um, candidates and making sure that they uh, meet a certain criteria. And, and one of the, those 
is making sure that they are not directly competing uh, for students uh, because or or major major funding, uh, you know, because that creates that kind of just doesn't create the environment for truly having open, candid conversations. Um, you know, when you have a competitor in the room, uh, as much as we've moved more in a direction of even competitors focusing on collaboration and how important that is to learn from one another, there it still is important just to make sure that we create a, a safe space. And one thing I also wanted to mention the other day, I was in a conversation with somebody we're going to have a, as part of our um, champions series this academic year. And, you know, he was from, he's from a very elite institution and uh, he wasn't familiar with our organization or even our campuses, but he was digging in, he was looking at them. And the first thing he said, he said, wow, these schools, they do everything that matters. And, you know, he just recognized that by learning more um, about the profiles of a, a new American college and university. That's great to hear. Um, can you say, uh, in terms of those criteria, for for folks who might be listening and thinking, oh, that you know, that sounds you know really distinctive. We want to be doing those things that matter. What what are the key things that you're looking for? in a member. You've touched on some, the, the core of liberal arts and the addition of professional programs, but are there other things that? Right. I mean, that obviously is one of the main um, criteria that there's, they're using that integrated educational model. Uh, some of the other, they're, they're non-competitive, as we already mentioned. You know, uh, selectivity, they're not highly selective schools, but they're not also open enrollment campuses. Um, they're sort of moderately selective. Uh, we look for financial sustain, uh, stability. Uh, they're not s- schools that are on the brink of closing. Um, the uh, The size of the schools range from roughly two thousand on the the smaller side to the high end of eight thousand, which is still a small school, you know. And, in the larger context of higher ed, when you think about it, but the sweet spot is around three to 4,000. So there's similarities in size, um, in budgets and endowments, as I mentioned, they don't have large endowments. Uh, you know, the average endowments about 75 million. Uh, and so there, there's, there's similar sized institutions, similar missioned, uh, spread out across the country. Great. And, and what do you feel, um, is the given you know literally thousands of different colleges and universities in the U.S. very crowded market? What, what do you see as the distinctive value that these institutions are bringing within the higher ed landscape that that's leading students to, to to choose them and to for those members not to be struggling too much even in this very highly competitive environment? Right. What's really interesting, if we went back to when we were founded in the 1990s, um, the model was, I would say, more unique. I, I, it's, now today, we're seeing a lot of schools gravitating towards this model of the new American college or university and gravitating towards moving beyond being just a small college, but introducing professional programs and uh, graduate programs. I think what's unique about arts is one, we've been working on this for a while now, and some of our institutions have really become the model uh, that our institutions are, they're innovative at their core because they are 
always looking to uh, address um, local regional issues uh, through the, the expansion of educational programming, be really connected to their community, uh, still remain a, an open campus in that they attract a diverse body of students. Uh, they're not serving just elite wealthy students. Uh, there's a lot of socioeconomic diversity across the students. Uh, we have historically black colleges and universities in our group, Hispanic serving institutions, uh, and other institutions that just continue to evolve in different ways to be really a strong, important organization institution in their, in their communities. Great. And for a lot of your tenure at NACU, um, you know, if we've been in, in a pandemic and one of the most challenging times that all of us have gone through in higher ed, what do you see as the, the, the role the association played in helping the institutions get through that? And then what do you think may be some of the lasting changes that come out of COVID for these institutions or, or society more broadly? Right. The, um, I mean, during COVID, the uh, one thing we saw right away, because we're, we are a remote organization, uh, everyone really leaned into one another within our group more than they We've always had a level of engagement and participation in our programs, but leaned in in a different way uh, to kind of think through the challenges together and share information. Uh, because the organization, uh, we have campuses across the country and covid was being handled differently based on whether you're in Pennsylvania, New York, California, Texas, Minnesota, like we were getting sort of a national perspective on the way in which the pandemic was being addressed and our institutions could like share uh, local insight, which helped our other, you know, other institutions in different States think, think about solutions and also just share contacts. Like this is how we're doing our testing whatever the issue, I mean, COVID really pulled everyone, every meeting we had, we have almost 20 learning communities that we manage throughout the year. COVID was the priority topic for an entire year. Uh, as you know, uh, being the leader of a campus and it still is, it hasn't gone away. It's still right up there. And, and then the fallout and the impact of that um, and how we manage not only through it, but out of it. And those conversations are still going on and, and will continue. Great. I think one of your new COVID activities, like myself, was launching a podcast. I, I'm, I'm curious, <laughs> what, what have been your sort of favorite moments so far and some, some insights you've picked up through, through talking to leaders in, in higher ed and experts there? Yeah, we, uh, so yeah, we lost the NACU podcast. Um, connect, collaborate champion. And, uh, you know, our first episode, you know, we were, we were, we're certainly talking to higher education leaders, but we wanted to talk to leaders from other industries to get their perspective on things. And we talked to like the director of risk management for the Wendy's corporation, you know, just to like get his perspective on things. And the, so the, the variety of, uh, leaders that we've talked to, I've really enjoyed that and hearing, um, different perspectives, but also seeing common themes across, you know, leadership. Uh, sometimes, you know, we go in with a very specific set of questions and, and a certain topic, 
but then in having that discussion, we have we we go down uh, not a rabbit hole, but we go in a different direction that uh, elicits some learning that we did not expect during the podcast. I we have one; it's not out yet. We're kicking off our second season with this one, in which it's about digital transformation. Like that was the focus in higher ed, and I made some off the cuff kind of joke, like, "Hey, can we talk about ransomware?" You know, and we probably spent the rest of the podcast in a, in a more serious conversation about ransomware, which you know is dominating um, the headlines and has certainly become a priority topic for, for any organization, but, and certainly higher education. So yeah, that's just that opportunity to engage in different, with different individuals and hear different perspectives has been a real joy. Uh, I mean, I, I guess I want to turn it back. Like what, what would you say to that question? Well, it's been great for me. I, you know, my focus has been particularly on talking to to presidents, leaders who um, have either transformed their college or university or pioneered new models in higher ed, and been really, you know, one thing that definitely comes through is is they tend to be amazing storytellers. Uh, some sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, it makes for a long podcast, but um, just the ability <laughs> to to really paint a vivid picture. Um, and I was also, it was interesting to me that the vast majority of those leaders don't come from the elite higher ed institutions. So it sort of points to your your point about the, the NACU kind of institutions is that, you know, we see that there is is real talent everywhere and, and being in places that really focus on delivering a transformational education, I think is, is really powerful. Um I wanted to to just wrap up yeah. with one other question for you, which was um, we both had a chance to interview on our podcast, uh, Nathan Graw, his work and that of many others like Clay Christensen and whatnot is suggesting that, you know, the next 15 to 20 years, if, if the pandemic wasn't tough enough, that with what's coming with demographics, uh, you know, what we know about the, the, the sort of overcapacity within the national higher ed system, um, it's it's going to be a really challenging environment, and so I'm curious what 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 you're anticipating in terms of of the biggest trends, the things you're that we're likely to see, and and how that shapes you know sort of your thinking about the future of NACU. Sure. The uh, yeah, what a great opportunity to talk to Nathan, and such a a humble person too. You know, I I was just like, you wrote the book that just woke everybody up and, you know, and you could see him like, no, no. I mean, yeah, I, I think it was good timing. I just, I, I was just as, you know, a scientist, a data guy. I'm like, no, Nathan, <laughs> people started paying attention. Um, one quick comment. And, you know, so we, I, I shared that we, uh, we share, we compare a lot of data. We benchmark a lot of data across the institutions and the, the institutions appear to be really, um, holding their own in terms of enrollment, uh, very, uh, stable with undergraduate education, but growing graduate education. And I think that kind of reflects this model of the NACU institutions. They're, they're always looking ahead, um, looking for new educational programs to expand into, uh, strengthening the ones that they already have. They're, they're growth minded. They're, they're not trying to go from 2000 to 10,000, but they're just steadily growing as an organization. And I, I feel like they're, that's why they've, they've been in a better position coming out of uh, COVID. And uh, 
with that mindset, we'll continue to grow going forward as, as some of these challenges come our way. They're, not, they're dependent on, obviously, undergraduate students, but I think it's that blend and also the type of student, the uh, pre-professional students and those that want to move into graduate education, attracting those students that's creating stability. You know, for us as an organization, I go back to like, we just, we listen very closely. Uh, we are uh, talking about doing more leadership C-suite executive exchanges uh, and also doing it more on a campus to campus basis so that we can really pair up some institutions and they can have even deeper conversations. Uh, so while we are expanding our learning communities Uh, creating more opportunities on a broader sense. We're also really wanting to hone in and get into a deeper level of conversations so we can talk about data and strategy and learn from one another. And, you know, collaboration, any uh, opportunities for innovative collaborations that advance our institutions, we're, we're there. Whether, you know, we can facilitate them, make connections, help lead them. That's, those are areas that we're going to be exploring further. Well, Sean, thank you very much for this first part of our conversation. And so uh, we'll take a break and then I'll, I'll turn the questions over to you. Excellent. David, I'm excited to have you on the NACU podcast and uh, continue our conversation. Uh, great Looking to see you. Looking forward to it, Sean. Yep. Great to hear you. Uh, you know, I had the, uh, the opportunity, the great opportunity to visit your campus recently and, and what an impressive place. Uh, not only the beauty of the campus, uh, but the uh, the talent that you have there. Uh, you're doing remarkable work. And, you know, I thought maybe we could start out uh, with uh, learning a little bit more about your background. <laughs> Tell us what your pathway was to, to where you are today. And then sure. we'll get, in, get into uh, like some yours, other things. It, it, it's a, a, been a little bit winding. So, um, you know, I, I grew up in New York, not far from you in Tarrytown. Um, but then moved down to Houston when I was 16. My dad is a, a doctor and he got a job in the medical center down there. Um, and so I finished up high school there, um, went to Harvard and uh, uh, majored in social studies, which was basically an opportunity to study whatever I wanted um, and got really interested in sort of the changing world of work and organizations. Um, and but I had never been outside the U.S., so I applied for uh, about 25 different – I had a list of 25 different fellowships and was fortunate and ended up getting a Rhodes. And so that uh, let me go to England and Oxford um, and to, ended up staying to do my DPhil there, met my wife Sue there. And so that was a, a real life-changing event. And uh, it also sort of started me on a path of studying – um, education and training systems around the world and how they relate to economic performance. And that's what I've done kind of throughout my career is, is looked at that. And then in the, the later jobs, uh, had a chance to apply that as a, as a leader within higher ed. That's terrific. Um, I guess a little side story. So not only we, were we born near one another, I, uh, studied my junior year abroad at the university of Oxford <laughs> And uh, in their tutorial system, which is obviously a very unique approach to education, and uh, yeah, what a what a powerful experience. The uh, you ra- rarely so, get U.S. professors offering you a glass of sherry at, at a class, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> well, I remember that, and then I I have to read my paper out loud, like sitting in the chair across from <laughs> read, and then we would discuss it, 
And then um, the professor would be like, okay, so for next week, I want you to read these books and write a paper that addresses these four questions. I'll see you in a week. <laughs> and then, but it was just a one-on-one class. I mean, that that's a, it's a very unique system. The uh, well, let's let's turn to Chatham a little bit. You know, maybe give us a, some history on on the university, and uh, and how it's how it's evolved over time. And, sure. and involved evolved into even a, a NACU model of of education. Well, Chatham has definitely been an evolver and innovative institution throughout its history. So it was founded back in 1869 as the Pennsylvania Female College. It was the first opportunity for, for young women to get a degree in, in, in the western part of Pennsylvania, in the Pittsburgh region. Um, and uh, and that, that's what it was for much of its history. It's gone through four name changes. So back in 1890, they decided that was a somewhat um, uh, dated sounding name. So they became the Pennsylvania College for Women at the urging of faculty and students. And it stayed that an undergraduate female focused uh, liberal arts institution right in the heart of the nicest uh, neighborhoods of Pittsburgh, um, right up uh, through through uh, the 18 through 1950s. Um, and then it became Chatham College. And Chatham is Earl of Chatham, who was uh, William Pitt, the the prime minister in Britain when Pittsburgh was founded. And so there was no direct connection. He didn't give us a big load of money. They just thought that sounded a more national name. Um, And and so uh, it continued as an undergraduate only women's college right up through um, the early 1990s. And as as you know, um, in in the early 70s, a lot of institutions, the Ivies, the top liberal arts institutions went co-ed. And that resulted in a major shift for um, all women institutions. So at, at that time in the 70s, there were over 300. Now we're under 30 in the country. And so Chatham saw a real okay. drop in its enrollment, um, uh, you know, heading in there. And so they had a kind of crisis and they, they had, were selling off buildings to keep the college going. And they hired a new leader, my predecessor, Esther Barazzoni. And the question was, were they going to go co-ed? And the board didn't want to, the students didn't want to. And so Esther proposed the way to save it without going co-ed is to add graduate programs. And so they started health science Mm -hmm. graduate degrees in the early 90s, and those really took off. They were co-ed from their start, and they eventually grew to being over 70% of the total enrollment. And so the graduate programs were thriving. They saved the university. But the female-only undergrad college was really struggling. And so as more competition, as you mentioned, more people were copying the NACU model. And so we went from being a real early mover in those grad programs. Suddenly, there was a lot more competition. So they weren't growing anymore. There was more competition. And the subsidy to the undergrad college was about $5 million a year and projected to grow further. And so right before Esther retired, she led the really difficult process of the decision that we Chatham really had to go co-ed at the, or all gender at the undergraduate level. And mm-hmm. so we did that six years ago and, and and I arrived just after that. So I've been here five years now and that's been a huge success. So in the, in those six years, you know, we've more than doubled the size of the entering class. We've been able to improve 
the quality of the students, their their graduation rates, retention, and so all the indicators you'd look for have been have been going in the right direction. So we're really pre pleased with that progress. Yeah, no, that sounds great. The uh, I wonder. So you came in after the switch, just shortly afterwards. You said I was here the, going to the, coed. The, the year I arrived was the finish of the first coed class. The finish of okay, yeah. Not, not what graduating, was, uh, just one I mean, year of the first first year class year. arrived. Yeah. And so now that that class has graduated, yep. right? Just probably last couple of years. And um, how, well, what was that transition like going coed? Well, I, I think Chatham did a really excellent job of it. Um, they they went around the country and benchmarked what were the leading models of institutions that had done it successfully, that had kept the 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 values, kept the focus on gender equity, and you know the I think the argument for doing it, it wasn't just that the data that said only two percent of female high school grads want a single sex institution, but it was also recognizing that. The, the, the original rationale for being single sex was we had to create opportunities for women to get degrees. Well, now we know women outnumber men at every level of higher ed, right? 57 to 43% for undergrads. Um, but the challenge is there aren't enough women in elected office. There aren't enough women in the boardrooms. We don't have pay equity. And to change those things, we need men to change as well as women. And so, you know, what was interesting, because it was the institution I came from, the model that they really liked was Rutgers. And Rutgers, uh, it was a different change. So Rutgers was the State University of New Jersey, a huge institution, over 70,000 students. But one of the five undergraduate colleges at Rutgers was Douglas College, which historically had been all women. And so while I was at Rutgers, they had actually undergone the transition uh, to integrate all of the undergraduate, keep it as a female residential college, but integrate all of the academics. And th- but they had kept the, the, the Women's Institute, they had kept a number of research centers devoted to these issues. And Ch- so Chatham did a similar thing. We have a Pennsylvania Center for Women in Politics that helps more women get to local, state, and federal office. We have a number one women's business center in the U.S., our Center for Women's Entrepreneurship. And we have the Mm. Women's Institute, which is leading gender equity issues in Pittsburgh. And so we've kept those values and that focus, but we now do it for students of all genders. And so that's enabled us to be a great Mm -hmm. environment for young women. We're rated number three in the country for women's leadership at the undergrad level. And the other top six institutions are all still single sex. but we also are attracting young men who see the benefits of being in an inclusive environment. Hmm. Yeah. When I was on campus, I had a tour um, given to me by one of the students and I, I asked the question, you know, how does the uh, university connect with Pittsburgh? They say, you know, here it is, you're, you're in Pittsburgh. Do they, you know, encourage you to go into the city? Do they put a big wall around the campus saying, no, don't leave campus. And she said, you know, I uh, one of the first things I received as a student was a bus pass uh, so that I could have all access to getting around the city and, and being engaged in it. And, and I, that was really impressive. I mean, it seemed like a small thing, gesture, a bus pass, but it, it, it was symbolic uh, to me as an outsider to see how you reach out to the city. And maybe you could talk a little bit about um, Chatham's relationship with the city of Pittsburgh. Yeah. Absolutely. So, you know, 
we, we, when we did our first strategic plan, you know, the, the person we worked with, Ted Eddy, who'd been, uh, sorry, Ted Long, who had been the president at Elizabethtown and works with AGB, um, he said, you know, you, you need to focus on your unfair advantages, right? What are the strategic things that are really hard for other places to emulate? And we really view our location, which is, you know, my office is in Andrew Mellon's old home, the, the banker who sort of financed uh, the, 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 all of the major companies of Pittsburgh mm-hmm. and who founded the, the, the National uh, Gallery in Washington, D.C. and was the Treasury Secretary. And so we have oh. these beautiful old mansions. We have a gorgeous campus, which you had a chance to visit. And if anyone doesn't want to take my word for it, Netflix has a series starting in two weeks called The Chair, starring Sandra Oh, and that was shot on our campus. So they they picked us out to be their fictional elite liberal arts college. So we have this beautiful place, but we're right next to Carnegie Mellon and Pitt. And one of the great things about being here is I've been, you know, in all different major cities of the U.S. throughout my career out in L.A., in Boston, in New York and New Jersey and and those places. And I've never seen colleges and universities that cooperate as well as Pittsburgh. And so here, a student at Chatham, which is a small place, you know, we're about 2,400 students, they can take 70 foreign languages. They can take the best robotics, AI, computer science courses in the world at CMU, and it's all free. So we all exchange. Students can take classes at any of the 11 colleges and universities in Pittsburgh, and they're all really close together. So we don't give students a separate bus pass. Their student ID is a bus pass, and it's also a museum pass. So they can get mm. for free into the cultural institutions. They can get downtown in 15 minutes. We've got the, you know, black and gold. We've got the Pittsburgh, the Peng- the Steelers, the Penguins. You know, we've got the Pirates who are not doing as well these days, but we're, we're hopeful they're building youth <laughs> talent. But, you know, they can take advantage of all of that and the great outdoor stuff that we have, um, but in an environment that's really collegial and safe. So we think those things are are really distinctive advantages to be in a small liberal arts campus environment, but in the heart of a great college city. Uh, the um, When I was there also, maybe you could talk a little bit about uh, your focus on sustainability and some of the work going on there. And then, you know, just how you see the institution evolving under your leadership going forward. Sure. So, so the one of the other unfair advantages we talk about is around sustainability in the environment. So, if you look at you survey this generation, because unfortunately, your our generation has screwed up the planet. You know, if you survey them and you ask them what are the biggest issues you're facing, you know, over ninety five percent say it's the environment. They know climate change is real and that we don't have a lot of time left to solve it. Well, Chatham, we're fortunate. Our most famous alum is Rachel Carson, uh, you know, one of the founders of the modern environmental movement through her book Silent Spring. And so, in her honor, back in '08, we were given a nearly four hundred acre campus that's about. 35 minutes from downtown Pittsburgh, about 45, 40 minutes from our, our other campuses. And, and we built that out as the greenest campus in the U.S. to be the home of the Falk School of Sustainability and Environment. So the entire campus 
is a living learning model of what a sustainable future could look like. It's got geothermal, solar, wind power. We just got certified to do microgrid training through the microgrids we built there. We even built our own wetlands that processes all of the, the waste. We do indoor and outdoor organic farming. We do aquaponics. And so literally every bit of the farm, the forest, the, the lead platinum buildings are examples of what, what we need to do as a society to, to really tackle this problem and take advantage of the huge opportunities in building a green economy. So we really see that as something where students who want to specialize in it, they can get a great education, but a distinctive element of every Chatham graduate is that they understand the challenges as well as the opportunities we're facing from an environmental perspective. Mm -hmm. And so that part of your, that'll continue to be a strong part of your identity going forward. And I would imagine, as we all know, with the focus on climate change now, and uh, it'll create more opportunity for, for Chatham and for students to have an experience that they might not get otherwise. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the challenges for, you know, when you mentioned the NACU institutions don't compete because they mostly tend to draw regionally, well, those of us in the parts of the country that are, have the steepest demographic declines that Nathan Graw was talking about, right, we've got to look for what are the reasons we can get people to travel more than 100 miles to go to college, right? And, and so we're always looking for what's that plus one, what's that distinctive thing that would lead a student to think about us. And so for us, that's been several things. It's been sustainability in the environment. It's been student athletes. So a big part of the successful co-ed transition is we went from about 70 student athletes to over 400. We have what will likely this year be a, a, a top 20 squash team that we started three years ago. And so that gives us a chance to beat places like Georgetown and the University of North Carolina, right? We don't usually <laughs> appear in the same headline as those places. And it's also the most diverse group right. on campus. So so it's uh, you know two from Pakistan, two from Egypt, one from Brazil, one from Malaysia, plus kids who were in the urban squash program, first generation kids who are, who are using squash as an opportunity to get a great education. And so we talk about uh, student athletes as a distinctive thing. And then the other is the core of that, you know, unfair advantage is the NACU mindset. Over a third of our undergrads come so that they can get an accelerated path into a grad degree that they can start in their senior year. So it saves mm -hmm. them time and money and they get that balance of a great liberal arts experience, but they also are already on track to becoming a health science student or to get their MBA or to do creative writing. And so we really think that that combination is one that that's powerful. So, you know, location, sustainability, that big emphasis on, on gender equity, taking advantage of Pittsburgh. We try to focus on those things that are really why would students want to come. And now our big challenge, and we're hoping Netflix will help, is just to get more people across the country to know Chatham's here, because we find if they visit the campuses, then they're really likely to want to come. Right. Yeah. I mean, that that's one of the the, the characteristics of the, the NACU schools, they're very, their brands are strong regionally, uh, but the national brand is, is a little weaker. And that's true of just many schools in general. <laughs> but the, uh, that's something we as an organization are always trying to do is to champion uh, our institutions uh, on a more national level. And uh, well, I, I'm always excited to talk to you and hear your thoughts. And um, 
I appreciate you know you finding time today to sh- share some insight on what's going on at Chatham, and I can't wait to be back on your campus. And you're welcome anytime. Ohio's yeah. just one state away, That's and right. so you know we, 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 I don't know if the the Browns and Steelers will be playing this year, but you know maybe we can catch <laughs> one together. So look forward to it. Excellent. Thanks, David. Thanks so much, Sean.